0: Good morning, welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm Bill Curley, and this is...
1: Holly Hedley.
0: <laughs> and you're gonna talk about money.
1: Oh, sure. Oh, you didn't know you were gonna do I that. Didn't, I didn't, but you just um, volunteered me, so I'll hold it up. <laughs> so we have, usually in our class, passed the collection plate around, and thanks to you, generous folks, um, usually are able to contribute a decent amount of money towards nonprofits in Houston and in the area that help serve the poor and underserved, um, those who don't have resources and who need them or social justice initiatives. So recently we had an art auction online that raised about $3,000. It's going towards a couple of organizations that are helping with COVID relief, Faye Esperanza, uh, Black Lives Matter Houston, Texas and Project Curate. So thank you for your generosity. If you continue to wanna donate online, you can go to our website, click on the donate button, which will guide you to St. Paul's and in the memo, just write in ordinary life. No further wording is necessary, but thank you very much for your participation and generosity.
0: And thanks to Olivia Watson and William Budge and Mm -hmm. Kim Leatherwood and our floor manager I don't mention him anymore ever, John Watson, who's telling us when to be on the air and shut up and uh, all that sort of stuff. (laughs) We are, uh, we've had at our church a um, task force that has been studying the issues of reopening and St. Paul's will begin gradually opening or maybe beginning as soon as next week. Uh, Small groups and large places, spaces, and... um, Then as time passes, we'll see how we can manage that, and we'll move on and uh, we will come back to the place where we were at one time, just taking a while. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, I'm glad you're watching us and I'm glad that you are here. I wanna begin today with um, an adaptation just for this time today of a prayer that I have adapted for my own personal use in my own daily practice. It's known as the St. Patrick Breastplate Prayer. And um, I'd like just to book in what I have to say, what Holly has to say today with uh, this. It's Jesus with us, Jesus within us, Jesus behind us, Jesus before us, Jesus beside us jesus to win us jesus to comfort and restore us jesus beneath us jesus above us jesus in quiet jesus in danger jesus in the hearts of all who love us jesus in the mouth of friend and stranger last sunday on the front page of one of the sections of the new york times and i brought it and left it in my case um, the section of the newspaper was blank, except for one headline that seemed to be broken in two and dripping off the page. And that headline said, the world is broken. There were two other headlines, subheadlines on that page. One that said, there is no vaccine for white racism. And another that said, greed and globalization set us up for disaster. Last Sunday was just six days after the murder of George Floyd, and it seems six months ago. It seems like such a long time. And what Holly and I are going to talk about today, I in the first part of the class, and Holly in the second, is that the system is not broken. The system is working perfectly. It's doing exactly what it is designed to do, I first got this idea when I watched the uh, documentary series on the five boys who became known as the Central Park Five. And after that documentary series was over, there was an interview done by Oprah Winfrey of the actors who were involved in that program And the man who played the part of the defense attorney attorney was asked something by either an audience member or by Oprah herself, I don't remember, about how, isn't it sad that our justice system is broken? Criminal justice system is broken, and he said it isn't broken. It works exactly like it is supposed to work. As you know, we have begun a new series uh, in Ordinary Life called Interbeing, how Jesus and Buddha can guide us through the pandemic. And it is in my effort to follow Jesus that I wanna say what you are about to hear. If we follow Jesus, we are in that following called upon to protest. I lost the thing. Can can you get it it back? There you go. Uh, We are called upon to protest When someone joins St. Paul's, or any Methodist church for that matter, or they take the vows that accompany the baptism of their child, we are called to repeat these, to answer this question. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they appear? Long before the virus, and long before this most recent unveiling of racism that is built into the structure of this country. I thought that asking people to say yes to that question by an institution that excluded people of other sexual orientations was incredibly hypocritical. I think that Religious institutions can so easily lead people to say things they don't really mean or to think they mean things when the behavior of those institutions prove otherwise. But that's another topic for another time. I am, as I am sure you have been too, overwhelmed by the outpouring of information and news and images, the outpouring of grief. The outpouring of awakening, of denial, of anger, of solidarity, and an absolute lack of empathy on the part of our president, and so much more. I am so angry by his weaponizing to get a photo op using the Bible in front of a church, and so appalled that his evangelical supporters see nothing out of line about that. I am encouraged by all of the positive, supportive, and solidarity building positions taken by many people uh, all across the world for what is going on in our country. I'm in a men's group, two African-American men are in that group, and one of those men said this week, commenting on these very positive, affirming solidarity statements that have been made, he said, These are just the kind of things that Baldwin, King, and Malcolm were saying in the 60s, and white people are just getting it. Of course, a lot of people are not getting it, but as perhaps never before in the history of this country, I think we better get it. I am thinking in light of the events of the past 13 days of the words of James Baldwin that Holly used as part of her presentation just a couple of weeks ago, I want to read them to you again. Love does not begin and end the way we seem to think it does. Love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is a growing up. No one in the world, in the entire world, knows more, knows Americans better, or, odd as this may sound, loves them more than the American Negro. This is because he has had to watch you, outwit you, deal with you, and bear you, and sometimes even bleed and died with you ever since we got here. That is, since both of us, black and white, got here. And this is a wedding. Whether I like it or not, or whether you like it or not, we are bound together forever. We are part of each other. He says, what is happening to every Negro in the country at any time is what is happening to you. I know that I personally have benefited from white privilege. I can't think of a white person I know who hasn't. For example, my father and his father and his father and his father before him were able to own property. They could buy and build their own homes and then pass them on to their children. I grew up in a family where as early as I can remember, my father said to his sons, I will pay for all the education you can get. You will not work your way through school. I will pay for it and I will pay for it. I want you to go as far as you possibly can. Now, my father worked hard to make this a reality, but because of systemic racism, a black person could work just as hard as my father and not be able to ever achieve land or home ownership. I look back on it now I was unaware of it at the time, and see the fact that black churches put their money in banks that would not loan them money to buy houses. That's called redlining, and it applies only to black people. I want to quote something that Nadia Bowles-Weber, a Lutheran pastor, said on her online newsletter this week. Quote, This is white supremacy, and I condemn it. And yet the truth is I have benefited from it every day of my life in ways that society tried to keep hidden from me so that I can keep believing that I deserve the life I have and so does everyone else, good or bad. And what do I do with that? How do I fight against something I hate and yet which has loved me back my entire life? Now, I am not interested in making anyone feel guilty. Um, None of that is in my best interest. I don't want to offend anybody. I want these teachings to attract people. Uh, I think first guilt is absolutely useless. White guilt makes black people the, the object, not the subject. Trying to relieve our guilt makes it all about us. And the message of this time is that it better be about black people. Now, I don't know where you are in dealing with your racism. Maybe you're one of those white people who thinks that you aren't racist. Certainly, Amy Cooper, the woman in Central Park, who called police to say that she was being threatened by an African-American man, says that she is not racist. What she said on that video, and you can look it up yourself and see what happened, it's very available. She said, I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Watch the video. You be the judge. She weaponized her words. What came out of her mouth, what was deepest in her mind and heart. And she has since lost her job. She lost her dog. Now she has her dog back. But she said in an interview that that incident ruined her life. The African-American man in my men's group Uh, made a very interesting point. He said that if we could go back in time and erase that incident from Amy's life, it never happened. There is every likelihood that she might have been making Black Lives Matter posters and been part of the George Floyd protests because she's not racist. But when a black man asked her to do what the law required in Central Park, It touched something deep in her, and another reality came out altogether. I don't know about you. I don't know if you, as a white person, have ever had a black male, a stranger, direct you to do something. I don't know what your reaction might have been. may have been similar to Amy's. Maybe not. Rational or not, she felt threatened, and though there is absolutely no reason that she should. And... If that incident had played out and the police had come and taken down that black man, her life would have been even worse than it is now because video captured what really happened. My hunch is that all of us who are white have so much to unlearn. I know that we were all born into a system that most of us have not seen as a system until now. Some folks still don't see it but those of us who do have a responsibility to help those who don't. I know this is hard. You may find yourself getting defensive. Explore that. Find out what the trigger is. Find out what's behind it. It can teach you a lot. Don't let your feelings get in the way of praying and practicing love and compassion. Both the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of Jesus come out of a profound personal experience of suffering. Their experiences were different, and we will maybe, possibly, go into those next week. I was going to do it today, but I tore all that material out because the circumstances that are going on in our country demand another kind of conversation but I am committed to contributing to religious literacy, so I'm gonna sneak some of that in here today. But what we're focusing on today is an unveiling of a suffering that has been part of this country from the beginning. And both what Jesus and Buddha taught was about suffering. Jesus taught, do to others as you would have them do to you, and Buddha taught, consider others as yourself. As I said last week, Buddha and Jesus are two of the most remarkable religious figures ever to live. They both began their religious teachings, their prophetic utterances, out of a context of suffering. And if circumstances allow, I want to elaborate on how Buddha and Jesus both got to their focus in their teaching. Um, Buddha's focus was on the suffering that comes to people because we're human and Jesus' focus was on the suffering that comes to people because of unjust economic and political uh, systems. So I wanna give you just a brief summary of um, how both Jesus and Buddha got their religious beliefs shaped. As I said, they're both shaped by an awareness of suffering, but they were very, very different. Um, Buddha's focus is on the suffering that comes to us simply because we're human. And Jesus, as I said, is more focused on social and political injustice caused by a system. So Buddhist teaching resulted in what uh, are called the five remembrances. Now, these are not the four noble truths. We will eventually get to those. But the, the five remembrances are these. And this is another part of my own daily spiritual practice. I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. I am sure to become ill. I cannot avoid illness. I am sure to die. I cannot avoid death. I must be separated and parted from all those who are dear and beloved to me, and I am the owner of my actions. Actions are the womb from which I have sprung, actions are my relations, actions are my protection. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, I shall become the heir. This is uh, what is known in common language as uh, the rule of karma. And Jesus taught it too. You get what you sow. So Jesus' experiences were shaped by his own family of origin story and by the economic class into which he was born. And you could probably summarize Jesus' teachings in this line, as you have done it to one of the least of these, you have done it unto me. So um, that's my piece Hmm. on the system isn't broken. It's working perfectly well.
1: Yeah. You know, when I thought about that title, I thought, I agree with that. Absolutely, the system isn't broken, but it's time to break it. And I think that this is a moment that we're in sort of cataclysmic moment where we say, what is the decision we want to make, and how do we want to move forward? So the other night, I'll start by sharing a little snippet of a dream. I had a dream in which I was at a pool gathering with several other white women, some who I know in real life, some who were just white women who looked like me, and we were all drinking and talking socially, and there was a point when a friend, who is a friend in real life, said to me, as another woman approached kind of Uh, joyfully looking for a conversation said, I'm not sure we can be friends anymore. And as I questioned this, she went on to say, you need to get off your high horse, Holly. And then she turned and began to laugh and chat with this other woman. In the dream, I walked away from a known group. I was sad, I was dejected, I felt felt rejected. So my untrained analysis, (laughs) tell me how I do, Dr. Young, is that this symbolizes what I think many of us, and by us I mean white folks fear, if we speak about things that matter, if we question the accepted status quo of our group, we will not belong and we risk rejection. And sitting with that sort of I call I would like to refer to that as like the in-between space, right? Where do we where do we stand if we don't belong to one ideology, but we're not sure where to stand in the next one? There's a lot to be questioned. There's a lot we need to divest ourselves from starting with the assumption that Our personal belonging is more important than doing what our conscience demands of us. What our great teachers like Jesus and Buddha ask of us. I think of the community that Jesus gathered around him and he had the misfits and the outcasts who by their actions or just by being themselves did not fit. He created a group for those who didn't belong in the mainstream because they saw the value of living in right relationship. And right relationship is another tenet of Buddhism. A lot of white folks right now, I think, are stirred into a new feeling, one that probably varies a little bit for each individual. But I imagine it's mixed in with the realization that the system isn't working the way we hoped it was. We are realizing that black and people of color are suffering in anguish over a too long history of not belonging. And so this makes us uncomfortable. It makes us kind of squirmy. And I think we're all going, well, shoot. How have I been part of this? And what do I want to be about and remaking something? I know for me, I want to be on the side of history that promotes the most justice for the most people. My life will tell that story, whether that happens or not. I want to be on the Jesus side of history. And when I realize I've messed up, which I have plenty of times, I'm, daily, <laughs> I want to have the humility to learn and to deepen my awareness and not crawl back into what is known or what is comfortable. I want, in short, to fall forward. When our leaders denounce the right to safety and justice for all, and invoke the use of force or demand control over those who are expressing suffering, I think we have to really question if that's what we want to be about. I'm not suggesting a specific political affiliation, but I am suggesting that we question our affiliations and whether they expand us or contract us and whether they contribute to more suffering or alleviate it. To reference in our being, everything we do or don't do, so our actions and our inaction, affects everything and everyone else in our reality in a rippling pattern. Any growth cycles through periods of contraction and expansion, so both are happening, expansion and contraction. And we as a people, I believe, seem in a contracted state right now. In that contracted state, we have the opportunity for self-reflection. We have the opportunity to ask ourselves, um, do you want me to do the clicker? To ask ourselves, what don't I know that I need to know? My middle son, who is particularly emotionally astute for a nine-year-old, said to me the day after our last election, after being exposed to whatever rhetoric and various beliefs that trickle their way down into classrooms, through other parents, through other children, through the ways that nine-year-olds perceive their world. At the time, he was six. So at six years old, he said to me, Mommy, the day after the election, what will happen to all the brown-skinned people like me? Do we have to live somewhere else now? And last night, or a couple nights ago, after hearing on the news that use of military force had been invoked against protesters, my same son said, Mommy, I don't think Daddy should be going out to the store anymore. I think you should be the one to go. My son, nine, left to choose whether his white mom or his black dad should go to the store amidst what he perceives to be an unsafe world. And in that moment, he felt he had to decide which of my parents stands the best chance for survival for a trip to the store. It's a place, of course, we all hope that our children don't have to stand in. And yet that, for him, felt like his reality. What I wonder is if some people are waking up to the fact that a body of other people in this country live with a thin strand of that fear every day. The same people who live with the generational trauma of racism are also people who laugh and love and create, people who go to the store and hug their children and walk their dogs, people who, like me, roll stop signs on the regular. had quite a few tickets in my day, but are held to a far different standard if pulled over. This is a fear that white America has instilled and is a reality that we can walk through almost any day without having to think about the consequence to our lives. I quote an ESPN analyst and former football player, Emmanuel Acho, who said, I as a black man have to calculate every move I make the second I walk out my house. This is no way to live. So, what do we do? I get that question a lot. I hear it all the time. I think there are things to do. There are lists and books and podcasts and even workshops committed to unpacking white privilege that are readily available. They're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're everywhere right now. Take advantage of this free information, this free education. I'm happy to share some of those resources that I've found useful, but there's also a strong need to question and create systems that work for everyone. It would benefit us as a society to adopt the Hippocratic Oath as a starting place. First, do no harm. But I think something we might be overlooking is the power of sitting with grief and suffering that is also a catalyst for change. We need to feel a particular kind of grief that renders us really still. If we can feel into that, I think we can begin to touch the edges of empathy. I think grief can move us into empathy. In both Buddhism and Christianity, Suffering plays a major role in transformation. The Eightfold Path or the Way is entered by the awareness and experience of suffering. So suffer, in the French origin, is souffrir. The lords listed are bear, endure, resist, permit, tolerate, or allow. I find it so interesting that in its definition, it goes through a metamorphosis from bearing to allowing. Bearing implies a kind of resistance to something, whereas I think allowing indicates a kind of submission to something. And we too, and I mean white Americans, must move through this pattern of suffering, moving from resistance to allowing it to wash over us so that we can fully understand that we of a collective body of people have made and upheld this system that causes suffering. We have to allow that truth to wash over us. We must be willing to allow that we cannot center ourselves as normative, correct, or right any longer. And we must allow for a multiplicity of voices and views and experiences that will certainly destabilize our sense of control. And I guarantee it's difficult. (laughs) And for any of you who have suffered anything, know this. If you have made it through suffering, you also know what awaits on the other side, which is liberation from suffering. Those of you who are in suffering right now know how heavy you feel. It's a hot stove we don't want to keep touching, but we keep our hand on it anyway. It is perhaps the most alive experience we have. That's what Francis Weller says. It's an experience that reminds us most deeply not only of being human, but of the Christ experience. I think of Jesus' last prayer. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In a Jungian sense, this is the darkest moment before dying to one thing and being reborn to another. And Buddhism, too, has this path that we can commit to that liberates not only ourselves, but everyone with whom we interact. And this beautiful, this beautiful question has been posed several times on the Ordinary Life Facebook page. And um, I can't remember if it came through on Instagram or not, but it was from a man in California. And he says, what specifically do you pray what images and words do you use to express lament, desire, and despair? I have to say that for now my prayer is a bit of a wail. George Floyd's last prayer of anguish was, Mama. Such a primal cry. And my images in prayer right now are my three beautiful sons and my beautiful husband. My communion is being with the tears as they well up and spill over as we hope that our kids world can exist with just a little less fear, but also knowing that we still have to arm them to face the simplest interaction with a cop or understand a threat from the top office to release dogs on them. Should they raise their voice in protest, we cannot afford to minimize their fear. We must arm them with how to respond to a hysterical white woman who calls the cops on them in a park. We must, in short, teach them too young about suffering and also about calling on some superhuman reserve of patience until the world changes. We create in them, our three brown sons, this expectation of perfection, not as if but because their life depends on it. Amidst all of this, how will they learn to, fa- to, to fail and to learn from that failure if they fear that they cannot? Somehow we have to make the way for them to have meltdowns and pillow fights. And the other night it was an underwear fight seeing slung across our room. (laughs) And we have to allow them to run down the street in their pajamas on a Saturday with wild hair and you know, being silly little boys. I was thinking that this will be a while. The not yet, as you say, will be a while. In evolutionary time, it took the planet four billion years to get to this moment And humanity, 200,000 years to arrive at this exact level of consciousness. There's a good chance that some of you are uncomfortable with what both of us are saying, and I think that's okay. I think the invitation to extend is just wherever you are. The best offering you can give discomfort is curiosity. One prayer I can offer might sound something like, I don't know what to do with what I've seen. I can't fix the pain. I can't take it away, but I can begin to see it. I can begin to imagine what it feels like. Let me not turn away, let me, feel into, let me lean into feeling and seeing. Let me do the personal work to change myself and move forward. Doing nothing is no longer an option. My son said the other night, maybe the coronavirus is the cure for racism. It's true that they are both sicknesses that are really present right now, and they both need healing. These two have reared their heads at the same moment, and I wish that his nine-year-old logic applied, that one could heal the other. There's no way to know how everything we're facing will shake down. For a lot of reason, this year has been called the worst year. You'll speak to that in a second. On record, in a social media post claimed that Like so many activities this year, maybe 2020 should just be canceled. I was thinking of this Zen story this week, and while it is in part about attaining a detached mind, it's also about how terrible circumstances uncover new possibilities. It goes, there lived an old farmer who had worked in his fields for many, many years. One day his horse bolted away. His neighbors dropped in to commiserate with him. What awful luck, they tut-tutted sympathetically, to which the farmer only replied, we'll see. Next morning, to everyone's surprise, the horse returned, bringing with it three other wild horses. How amazing is that, they exclaimed in excitement. The farmer replied, we'll see. A day later, the farmer's son tried to mount one of the wild horses. He was thrown on the ground and broke his leg. Once more, the neighbors came to express sympathies for this stroke of bad luck. We'll see, said the farmer. The next day the village had some visitors, military officers who had come with the purpose of drafting young men into the army to fight in a war. They passed over the farmer's son, thanks to his broken leg. The neighbor patted the farmer on his back and said, how lucky he was to not have his son join the army. We'll see, said the farmer. The ideas that challenge us help us grow and they develop as a result of the hard things that happen, or that I'm sorry, what develops as a result of hard things that happen is the classic hero's journey, that we must enter the dark night of the soul in order to also come out of it. Pain gives us focus. Defeat creates empathy. This story is also about cause and effect. Everything has an action and a reaction. And while I don't want to take the will see approach in this particular moment, I do wonder what kind of change will come out of all that is being revealed. It is a revolutionary, apocalyptic moment, both of which mean to roll back or to uncover.
0: So um, let's talk about all this. Yeah. I was listening to the radio driving here this morning, and there was a on collaborators Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and it started out talking about how people collaborated with the Third Reich at the beginning of the Third Reich when we were in Germany many years ago we had this outstanding guide who just made history come alive and he talked about how the German people were suffering after Uh, world war one they were under the burden of reparations their economy was failing there was no hope and uh, so Hitler came along and gave people a reason to hope Mm -hmm. and even though it was insane um, there were people in the population who knew that it was wrong Mm But they went along with it because if they did not do that, they would pay a price. Mm -hmm. And they would rather collaborate than do that. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I think we've seen that very, very thing happen in this country Mm -hmm. with top political leaders taking positions, say, four years ago. And then all of a sudden now, they've done a 180 degree spin. Mm to uh, support a system that's not empathetic and not just. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> being aware of this, and I, I think th- that's the kind of thing I hear you saying when you say examine your position, mm-hmm. to be aware of where you are. Yeah. I, I, he- I heard a story just this past week of a white man who was visiting a black man. A black man was a physician living in a affluent part of town and they went out for a walk. And the physician reached into his jean pocket to remove a handkerchief mm-hmm. the blow his nose or whatever the, the African-American man did. And when he did, his driver's license fell out. Mm-hmm. And his buddy said, why are you carrying your driver's license? And he said, because in case I'm stopped, I need to be able to prove I live here.
1: The black man said black that. black man yeah. said that. Yeah.
0: And that would be nothing that would ever cross yeah. my consciousness to do.
1: Well, that's, that's the exact, that's an exact example of, of white privilege, right? That we don't, it's, it, we're, we're born into something that we didn't know we agreed to, that we didn't consciously know when we were born when we were babies when we were little kids. But slowly our system starts to work around us and, and we start to work with it. We start to collaborate with it because we think in our myopic vision that if it works for me, it wa- must work for everyone because you know, so many spaces aren't integrated. So many spaces aren't um, representative of the, the multiple voices that are needed in a room to share experience. There's not enough storytelling about experience between folks. Um, I don't think that that's I don't think it's helpful in this moment to go, let's go get our friends of color and sit around and ask them, what is it like to be you? I think that can be a harm and can occur as a kind of violence because I don't think that our friends and colleagues of color need to be our teachers right now. I think we need to be our own teachers, right? And to just know that that reality exists I carry my license because if I get stopped just while walking, I need to prove that I live here. I I think that that's that thin strand of terror that I was talking about. This this and it's something that I can feel. You know, I'm in my marriage we can grapple through a lot of these things. And 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 my privilege is like peeled back for me every day. Oh, that's another way that I was operating. That I realize is from a privileged position. And, and, and Josh is aware that he has a certain like, collateral or privilege in his life too. He's educated, he has a great job, he's uh, smart, he, um, you know, he has all the right things of privilege. But what doesn't privilege him is the color of his skin. And that proof of I belong here has to always be on his person.
0: Right? I, w- I wanna know, what did you say to Cole? When he said, maybe you should go shopping. I
1: started crying. I just, it breaks my heart that for him, that's the choice. I have to choose which parent has the least likely chance of being shot. Because in his mind, that was the fear. If daddy goes to the store, could he be shot? And...
0: Have you had the conversation with your boys?
1: Not for the first time, but yes. In other words, this time feels um, different. It feels more visible.
0: Maybe people don't know what I mean by the conversation. The
1: conversation I think that you're referring to is how do you act when you are and when you have an encounter with a cop? My right. boys are eight, nine, and ten. They can't drive. They have very little independence for that. They can just like be like, "Mom, I'm going." to the park by myself you know they still are very much reliant on the family structure to support their existence but as early as five six and seven we were having these conversations with them because I remember one time we went to drop our dogs off at the vet and it was like Josh and I were going to exchange I was going we were meeting in the parking lot I brought the dogs with me he was going to take the dogs into the vet and uh I, because I didn't want to take all three of the boys and the dogs into the vet and kind of come in with this tumbleweed of chaos. <laughs> and um, my youngest was sitting in the back seat of the car in his, whatever he was in, his booster seat, and he had a water gun in, in, with him. And the windows are a little bit tinted, and there was walking around the periphery of the, of the parking lot a cop, like a, like a security guard. And Evan takes his water gun, and it has one of those little like um, pumpers, like a little bazooka pumper. And he starts aiming it at the cop, going choo 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 choo. He's he was five or six at the time, and I just batted it down, and I said, "Don't you ever do that again." It was a water gun in the hands of a five-year-old. It's but, happened. But it happened to Tamir Rice. Yes. And so the fear that I had was oh my God, if he sees that, just the shadow of that in the car, what is that cop going to think, you know? And I'm aware that that fear that I had of don't you do that again, put it away, came not, you know, I had to sort of break apart my privilege in order to know that my son as a brown-skinned boy could have been at risk in that moment, And that's a horrible thing to have to hold.
0: There's even a debate going on now uh, in the black community about whether it is wise to have all this interracial demonstration going on right now, that it should be maybe just on the part of black people. You have a position about that? Or have you heard that debate?
1: I haven't tuned into that debate. Um, I can see the rationale for needing to lift up the black community and black voices. Absolutely, I can see that. I can also, as a white person who considers myself, um, you know, a, a strong ally who wants change, uh, who is working for anti-racism, I can see why allies are necessary or um, or needed. But so I don't know what the right answer is. But I think you know there have been. I do think it's time for even those who are quite woke or quite um, involved in the work to to just have humility and listen. There were, for example, some issued um, hopes and expectations from uh, the national chapter of Black Lives Matter. If you are white and you're planning to show up to a protest, here's how you can best support. And I thought those guidelines were needed and, and great because you know it was really calling on the white allies, not to walk through the streets and high-five the cops. That sort of demeans the intent. The intent is to say, we need police to change their behavior toward our community. And if white folks come in and they're walking through high-fiving the cops, it's like that's a, it's a disconnected message, right? So you know, it, was, it was just kind of like, how can you show up in solidarity and not just as an opportunist? or not because we feel guilty, or not because we're, we're sort of driven to move in this moment, but how can we also shift our awareness in this moment? Um, and I've been thinking about, you know, we um, I wrote something on Instagram the other day that was like, if you're just waking up to how racism works in this country, fine, wake up. If you have been aware of it and now you're stirred into movement, good. If you have been working on behalf of anti-racism and continue to do so, great. But I think what I would say to those who want to do something is to take a minute and reflect where you are and create a long-term plan because it's going to be needed far beyond this moment. We can show up in this moment and then we can go right back to you our sort of comfortable that. lives.
0: Now, I don't think that will happen this time.
1: I, th- I hope not. But I think a lot of, when the energy drives something, In a couple months, my skepticism says, well, who's gonna still be there in a couple of months? I personally don't feel that I have a choice. Doesn't mean I'm not gonna mess up. Doesn't mean I'm not gonna realize sometimes how my words or my actions um, might be perceived or how they could do harm. But I'm committed to keeping on showing up because even though my body doesn't know what it's like to walk outside my door and feel that thin strand of fear, I gave birth to two out of three of my kids So in that sense, that lives in my body that I'm connected to them through my body. And so I, I, yes, I wanna commit to a different space that we can operate in. Um,
0: Let's address the, uh, and and we will probably get into this next week when we talk about anger. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's address the uh, fact that some of these protests have ended in looting and destruction and fires and that sort of thing. Mm Um, Wayne Herbert, who sends me so much good stuff, sent me something that just like a little bomb went off of enlightenment. He said, um, some people would say, yes, it's bad that people are being killed, but the destruction of property must stop.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: He said, there's another way to say that. Mm -hmm. And it is, yes, it is sad that there is destruction of property, but the killing must stop. Mm-hmm. Because it, those two ways of saying it reflect such different priorities. Mm-hmm. And um, we get caught up in power, position, and possessions. Right. And uh, I'm not justifying violence in any sense. Um, I, I'm tempted to say, uh, and I think this is original with me, that every protest has a few bad apples?
1: Chris Rock <laughs> Just like said, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, I want to use that piece. Yeah. J- you know, that's the line that's said yeah. so often is that, well, every police department has a few bad apples. Uh-huh. And Chris Rock said, there are some professions yep. where you don't need a bad apple. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, what if the, the chairman of... Um,
1: American Airlines. Uh, well, he said American yeah. Airlines. Yeah.
0: Said, um, you know, most of our pilots are committed to landing the plane on the runway, <laughs> but we got a few bad apples who like to fly them into mountains. Yeah. That wouldn't go. Wouldn't work. Wouldn't and he work.
1: ends by saying, there are just some professions where we can't afford to have bad apples. Right. He says, I've had a bad apple. It hurts your stomach, it doesn't kill you. Right? So yeah. you can I respond to the sort of the the looting and the rioting and sort of the, the, the missed opportunity
0: of where the focus needs to be. Well, it's yeah. that lives matter more than property.
1: Yes. And, you know, I think so often we focus on the flame and not on the spark that started the fire. Right? And, and when we, you know, Martin Luther King said, I'm going to get the exact wording wrong, but rioting is the language of the unheard. Right. And violence. Is a demonstration of unmet needs, and I think deep grief. When you know, so deep grief can be creative, can create new things and new ways. Protests are new ways of being. It protests something that isn't working. Sure, when we get into rioting and looting, and someone pointed out, well, uh, this country was founded on rioting and looting. Well, this right? country, I, the yeah. the
0: birth of this country, uh, says that. Um, there are times when injustice demands a revolution
2: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and yeah. w- we may be living in that. I, I lived through the 60s and I saw a historical piece last night on TV about the riots in Los Angeles uh, back in the 60s. It was horrible. I mean, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that sort of thing has happened in this country many times. Uh, but in the 60s, I think that the protest, the civil rights protest and the protest against the war in Vietnam, there there were people killed in there, remember Kent State mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. other places.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I'm convinced that that helped end the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced that those civil rights demonstrations brought some good.
1: Yeah. So Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned revolution again. and. The etymology of that is to roll back, revolve, roll back. In other words, let's roll back what is happening here. Let's uncover it. Let's, let's revolve it to evolve it.
0: <laughs> so know? when you were telling the story about this, this end story about the farmer and the horse, I love that story. I do too. It's, it's just yeah. so great. It reminded yeah. me that there is another story from the rabbinic tradition. Mm-hmm about a rabbi who is teaching his students when the uh, dawn of a new day is. This is very important in Judaism because you have to know when the Sabbath is truly over. So you enter into the Sabbath at sundown on Friday and when is the Sabbath over, the dawn of a new day? Mm -hmm. And so he was asking his students, when is the dawn of a new day? And someone said, um, when you can see in the distance an animal and know whether it is a cow or a sheep, he <laughs> said, "No, that's not right." And they said, um, "When you can see in the distance a tree and you can discern the individual leaves, then it's the dawn of a new day." And they go on and on, each one giving a an answer and each one being wrong. Mm-hmm. And so finally, they're frustrated and they say, "Well, when is the dawn of a new day?" Mm. And he says, when you can look into the face of any other person and see them as your brother mm-hmm. or sister, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it's dawned on mm-hmm. you. And that's what's required for where we are right now, the ability to see.
1: Yeah, I've, I've quoted this often. Um, I, I really admire the writer ta Coates, who writes for The Atlantic. And I also really enjoy the podcast On Being with Krista Tippett. And she once Um, interviewed him and in my listening I I perceived that she was a bit uncomfortable because what she wanted from him was um, hope was offer me hope like what's working here and and he kind of says I don't know that I can give you that again I'm gonna misquote exactly but what I remember is that he used the analogy of, of being in a cage and he said you know Black Americans have been in a cage for a long time and we've been aware that we've been in this cage and we, of course we went out of the cage, but we know that we're in it. White Americans are just waking up to the fact that they're in the cage with us. And so yeah, we're like shaking the bars, like I went out, I went out. When what we need to do is turn and face one another and when we can no longer see each other as other than ourselves, then we might be able to break open the cage. And that's going to be a while. The revolution takes a while.
0: Somebody uh, asked a female African-American woman, uh, when will all this be over? (laughs) And she said, when we all feel safe.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, this, this idea has been occurring to me you know, safety is just a basic human need, right? Like, a basic human need to feel safe is one that is so easily taken for granted, I think, in kind of everyday happenings in, in, the, in most of white America that we're like, well, of course there's safety. We have police forces, we have um, checks and balances in our government, but, but as, as we are saying, like, there's a whole group of people it probably extends beyond black Americans that don't feel safe by the, the protections that we feel are safe. And I, I wonder if some part of this, and I think this goes back to my dream a little bit, is like we have to be willing to unbelong in order to find a new place of belonging.
0: I think that Jesus said, um, the son of man has no place to lay his head. And if we work toward protecting, and I'm not being irrational here, but I, I'm, I'm just going to say that if we put our identity in what we have, we're lost. Mm-hmm. Because we can't hold on to anything. Mm-hmm. There are no pockets in a shroud. Mm-hmm. And what Buddhism says is you're going to lose everything eventually Mm -hmm. face into that reality now and live as if it were so and and i remember when i first began getting interested in buddhism 50 years ago or so at least uh, for me long time ago um, one of the things that attracted me is that the buddhist people that i knew were so happy Mm -hmm. and um as you know i've got this commitment for the obligation yeah. to be happy and I wanted to do that and then and then when I begin to explore why that was and they start with these five remembrances I am of the nature to grow old get sick and die mm-hmm. and I can't avoid that and they're you know one of the first things in Theravadan Buddhism that young monks are sent to do uh, after they've completed time in a monastery is they're sent to the charnel fields for three-day meditation the charnel fields are where the dead bodies are, where they have what they call sky burial, mm-hmm. where they put the bodies out and the birds come and eat them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they send the monk there to begin their journey. That's the beginning. Mm. And so these Buddhist people that I've met are just so happy. Yeah. And their, their, their happiness is lodged in this conviction that we have an obligation to treat other people with compassion mm-hmm. and that means seeing them mm-hmm. and and living through that
1: one of the um things i've learned about buddhism is you know there's so often the idea of detachment is mistaken for lack of empathy or compassion you know but that, that's not at all what it means detachment is as you say being unattached to the things or the even false identity that make us think we are who we are. And as I have, I'm much newer in my study and learning about Buddhism than you are, but as I've grown into understanding detachment, I understand it actually um, opposite of what the word says, which is I think it actually calls us into extreme empathy and compassion, but demands our detachment from sort of those Surface values that we hold dear, that we hold on to as part of our identity. Um, and there's a book actually written by uh, a, an African American Buddhist priest, and she is that the right word Th- that she's been kind of ordained as a as a as a Buddhist. Who uh, are you
0: talking about? Pema Chodron. No,
1: no, Pema of Children's not African American. a
0: nun.
1: It's anyway. I, yeah, I'm. I'm totally blanking. I, I'm okay. terrible with names on the spot. But her book is wonderful. And she actually talks about the, the role of anger and anguish and suffering in um, her process of becoming, right? And how Buddhism actually, for her, becomes a space where she can nurture and um, empathize with the feelings of, of anger that led her to seek a spiritual bath, path that could also liberate, right? um she uh, she's she's amazing her work is amazing so i will
0: I will mention uh, a couple of books that uh, I think could be valuable to people anticipating what we're going to be talking about next mm-hmm. sunday um which is using anger as a spiritual tool right. um in Buddhism, anger is considered a chief corrosive mm-hmm. now that doesn't mean that that leads to misunderstanding too people think well Buddhists don't get angry
2: mm-hmm. they do yeah
0: just like everybody. That's right. So They're human. <laughs> the yeah. the Dalai Lama was asked one time, a uh, very famous exchange. The person said, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course I do. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem. Mm-hmm. So how can you be angry and not allow that to be a problem?
1: Not allow it to consume you, but also to release it. It can be creative. I think anger can be really creative.
0: Say a word about our podcast before we oh, close yeah. this out.
1: Yeah, so, so far we've got Two episodes of In Between recorded and downloaded onto our website, which we'll be doing weekly. And it's just a conversation about expanding some of these ideas a little more casual. Um, And hopefully you guys will listen. You can find it again on wherever you download your podcasts and on our website, OrdinaryLife.org. It's been fun.
0: So Holly mentioned earlier that someone had suggested that 2020 be canceled. And just in wonderful synchronicity, Edward Harris sent me this poem that he got from his son that I want to uh, close with today. What if 2020 isn't canceled? What if 2020 is the year we've been waiting for? A year so uncomfortable, so painful, so scary, so raw, that it finally forces us to grow. A year that screams so loud, finally awakening us from our ignorant slumber. A year we finally accept the need for change. Declare change, work for change, become the change. A year we finally band together instead of pushing each other further apart. 2020 isn't canceled, but rather the most important year of them all. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And Holly and I will see you back here next Sunday. Bye.